Hi, I'm Jeannie Becker. Welcome to Beyond Style Matters. I've spent decades working in fashion's trenches, seeing the best and the worst of human style, and had the opportunity to get up close and personal with some of the world's most intriguing characters. What I've learned about truly great style is that it goes far beyond what we wear. It's about the way we move through the world. On this episode, it's a love affair with shoes. First, with Elizabeth Semmelhack, the creative director and senior curator of the Bata Shoe Museum. And later, I speak with Canadian-born, internationally renowned shoe designer, Patrick Cox. When I was growing up, the Bata Shoe Company had a certain gravitas for me. My dad had a small slipper factory in Toronto, and one of his biggest, most important clients was Bata Shoes, the huge multinational operation founded by a Czech entrepreneur back in 1894. My dad happily shipped his slippers to Bata stores all across the country, and my mom and I had what I felt was the exciting task of typing the labels that went on all the boxes that were shipped. My passion for footwear certainly goes back to those early days, and of course, once I started working in fashion's trenches, shoes became a definite obsession. It's a passion most women can relate to, especially Elizabeth Semelhack, who's the creative director and senior curator of the Bata Shoe Museum, the largest shoe museum in the world, founded by the late Sonia Bata 25 years ago. As daughter-in-law of the Bata Shoe Company's founder, Sonia began collecting shoes back in the 40s, and today there are close to 15,000 artifacts in the Bata collection, spanning 4,500 years of history. From ancient wooden sandals, mukluks, and moccasins to Manolos and Air Jordan sneakers, Elizabeth Semelhack has devoted her life to studying and celebrating eclectic footwear and is a world expert on the whys and wherefores of what's made us wear and what's made us want certain kinds of shoes. Elizabeth Semelhack, I'm so happy to see you. I, uh, I've adored you for a long time. I'm a major fan of the Battlefield Museum, and you have brought it to brilliant uh, heights in the past almost 20 years that you've been. I know, 20 years. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Tell us how you get that coveted gig of actually being able to run a precious gem like the Bata Shoe Museum and, and you know more than anyone could ever imagine um, about shoes getting to know that and getting the inside track on that. Well um, you know the way that I ended up at my job was I like to say I answered an ad. <laughs> it, it was a little more complicated than that but um, I, I didn't actually know anything about footwear at all. I had done my um, graduate work in Japanese art history and I had a master's in Western art history, which I, I, I think maybe that's why Mrs. Bata was interested in um, talking to me, that I had a kind of breadth. Um, and I, I remember going, I didn't know what to expect. I am from the States. And so I came up and the building, right, is so remarkable. And then meeting Mrs. Bata and seeing the shoe collection I was both intimidated and incredibly excited that um, that I might have this opportunity to work with the collection. And what, as I was doing research into, you know, how much footwear research was out there and what could I possibly do, and I realized that so little work had been done, and that this was such a huge opportunity. Um, as an art historian, I was never interested in um, single artworks made by brilliant geniuses, uh, specifically to be consumed by one person, you know, to put in their living room. I was more interested in prints, which were mass produced and mass consumed. And footwear is the same, right? It's like if, if a shoe sells really, really well, it means it speaks to a whole moment in history. And so I realized that some of the work I was doing in art history, I could just pivot and begin to do on shoes. And unbeknownst to me, my first question when I got to the museum was, why the high heel? 
and nobody had ever worked on it in a serious way. And so, wow, that just like set me on a course that then led to sneakers. And I thought maybe I wouldn't be able to have so many questions, but 20 years on, I still have tons of questions about what shoes mean, why we wear what we wear. And it's just been so exciting. And well, now you I have to be creative director. Oh, <laughs> it's incredible. And you certainly have answered over the past few decades, many of our questions and, uh, and shown us um, such incredible um, moments in time via this amazing footwear that uh, the Baddest Shoe Museum has in its collection, which yeah. is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, <laughs> I- incredible. I'm so surprised that you don't have a strong background in cultural anthropology. Like it, That, to me, sounds like the, the type of person that would be doing this, too, yeah. because you yeah. have such a feel for society and, and zeitgeist and you know where things have been and, and where they're going. Well, I do think too, you know, I mean, definitely I was already sort of a cultural art historian. Um, and, and now 20 years on, I would agree with you. Like my focus has been how does footwear function within culture and what can I learn or what can we learn from um, time periods and culture by looking or using shoes as that entry point. And so hopefully I've learned on the job. Now, tell me about the very first pair of shoes that you ever got that you were truly excited about. Oh, gosh. This is going to date me. Um, (laughs) I never was obsessed with footwear personally. However, I really, 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 really wanted in middle school a pair of Adidas Gazelles. And boy, did I really want that pair of shoes. Um, So, I yeah, that would probably be my first... Uh, real shoe love. That's, uh, and you think that dates you? I, when I think, I think about the first pair of Savage saddle shoes that oh. I got <laughs> as a kid somewhere in the late 50s. Okay. So uh, you're, you're, you're much, obviously much younger than me, maybe a little hipper than me. I don't know. But it, it, it's There's so no interesting. <laughs> but then you went on to one of the the many uh, wonderful shows that you've curated has been about the running shoe, about the yes, sneaker. Right. Uh, so yeah. oh, kind of a dream come true for you to really wallow in that arena. It what, was, yeah. What do you, it, there has been an amazing resurgence in popularity over the past, I would say even maybe decade or uh, a, a, for the running shoe. I mean, yes. the running shoes have become such a hip statement. It used to be like, oh, you don't put a sneaker on. It's totally going to ruin your outfit. And you used to see right, women walking down the streets of New York, you know, in mink coats that they were wearing sneakers because that's the only yeah. way they could get around. And I thought, oh, it looked so gauche and terrible. But yeah. now all of a sudden, wow, if you've got a cool sneaker, you totally rock it. How, yeah. how did that whole sensibility change? So I think that um, sneaker culture, or what might be defined as sneaker culture, you know, if you, we have to go back to the 70s. And something happened in the 70s in multiple places, which began to give the sneaker um, a sense of status. The sneaker actually started as a status item in the 19th century, because only the wealthy could afford tennis shoes, um, and rubber was really expensive. But by the 70s, sneakers had, they had for decades been sort of very low, like you said, like something that you wouldn't necessarily want to be seen wearing. But... In the 1970s, when jogging came into the United States and into Canada, um, when the me generation began to focus on physical fitness, both for uh, the attainment of physical best, but also as an expression of conspicuous consumption, expensive sneakers began to be something that you might wear jogging, but you also might show up at Studio 54 in. And, And so this blurring between fashion and fitness was happening in the 70s, at the same time, within New York City, sneaker culture in which certain types of sneakers, certain brands of sneakers were becoming really important to, um, to urban fashion was also happening simultaneously. Those things, um, the idea of fashion and conspicuous consumption and cool hip hop, basketball have intertwined um, over the preceding decades to create uh, a sense of cultural importance for sneakers. And for a long time, in fact, when I did Out of the Box Rise of Sneaker Culture, my focus was on masculinity. 
I was arguing that sneakers were a gateway drug, basically, for men to step into the fashion system. But increasingly, uh, women are also wearing sneakers because sneakers can often do the work that high heels do more comfortably. So <laughs> That's an you, understatement. <laughs> right? And so if you want to wear Gucci, you now can wear a Gucci sneaker mm-hmm. as well as a Gucci heel. Mm-hmm. And so if you can express your, your sense of fashion, you can express conspicuous consumption through a choice of footwear that also gives you comfort and increasingly does not uh, sort of speak poorly to your femininity, mm-hmm. then you can see how sneakers are becoming so important. And I'm also curious in the pandemic moment, are yeah. sneakers actually going to now just be it? Absolutely. My next question. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> are we truly going to be abandoning our ultra high heels the way we have during this uh, current period? Um, what's your take on that? What do you see in your crystal ball? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball so that I could actually answer that. But um I think the longer the pandemic goes and the longer that we are out of our hard clothes, um, from our hard pants to high heels, uh, I think the more uncomfortable we will realize they are when we actually get dressed for a formal event um, or even going back to the office. So I think at first I thought it could go one of two ways that we were so schlepping around at home in our pajamas and our slippers that we would be so excited to be able to dress up again. But um, Vivier, for example, just uh, is coming out with a pair of flats that look like babouche. I actually look like house slippers um, uh, for the fall. And I do think that uh, we will be uh, hard-pressed to make ourselves completely uncomfortable again. So hmm. now as I'm weighing it, I think we're, I think we're going to at least see uh, comfort surpass hmm. um, structure for a little while longer. So interesting. But I've got to say the charge that I get, you know, and I'm, I'm at my country house most of the time now during this, mm-hmm. well, the, the past few months really. Um, but I go back into the city sometimes. I don't really have any place to go there. Right. <laughs> but I do try on my high heels for old time's sake because I have a gazillion (laughs) pairs in my closet. I'm absolutely dumbfounded at how uncomfortable they feel on my feet. I don't know, maybe my feet have just sort of grown in another direction now and I can't even tolerate the high heels. But I do admit that when I stand in front of the mirror in those high heels, man, it does look sexy. And I feel kind of empowered, even though if I tried to, you know, walk down the stairs, I probably wouldn't make it. God forbid. Should I, 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 maybe I've forgotten how to walk in high heels, but it's funny, isn't it? How there's still something about what uh, a certain heel height does for the spirit that I don't know if you can replace that. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I I don't mean to sound rude uh, or that I look at men's uh, erotica much, but, you know, uh, one of my first questions uh, when I started working on the high heel was why is men's erotica is the naked female body so often ornamented by a pair of high heels? And it's a whole long story for why, but increasingly um, sneakers are taking the place of high heels. And so I wonder if we, if culture delivers a new model of what it looks like to feel sexy or look sexy, if we'll feel um, attractive in a pair of sneakers as well. So it's all cultural. Yeah, very much yeah. so. And it depends on the imagery that we're, you know, bombarded Yeah, that we with consume them. and what comes yeah. to the fore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so cool. Uh, the collection at the Battashoe Museum is uh, just beyond amazing. And for anybody uh, out there listening who has never been to the Battersea Museum, do yourself a favor, you know, and as soon as the borders open up, get yourself to Toronto (laughs) and uh, visit the museum. Uh, Something arrived in the mail for me today and I am just flipped at how gorgeous this coffee table book, a Rizzoli book called The World at Your Feet by Elizabeth Semelhack, <laughs> and in celebration of the museum's 25th uh, anniversary, yeah. and the way the show, the shoe, the shows are shoes, <laughs> the shoes are shown in this book is beautiful because you really go 
by shoe by shoe. I mean, you have these yeah. full-blown pages of these shoes as works of art from yes. every era and every culture. You know, yeah. It's just uh, such a beautiful celebration. I imagine it was quite the feat for you to uh, stand <laughs> back to see the forest for the trees and pick the key. Correct. Um, you know, we'd wanted to do a collections book for a long time and the collection is verging on 15,000 artifacts. So I could only fit a hundred into this book. Finally, one day I realized that I wouldn't have the burden, if you want to put it that way, of putting things in historic order if I could just arrange it by color. And so once I decided to sort of think about them as jewels and arrange them by, uh, color, it really allowed me to jumble things together. And you really do, I think, get to see an amazing hundred pairs of shoes and you see them really as works of art, which is something that we normally, you know, we have beautiful, beautiful artifacts, but the point of the museum is to talk about cultural history. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they're so stunning, right? And so the book was a joy put together. And I'm so glad that we were able to do it. The late, great Mrs. Bada, who I had the absolute honor and privilege of uh, knowing for many years, um, never lived to see this book, right? Because she died a a couple of years back. So, uh, so sad, but boy, her spirit is totally in this book. You know, you just open up any page and there's uh, Mrs. Bada just, uh, and how great that you got to work with someone who had that unbridled passion for the subject matter. Yeah. And, and such a wide ranging interest. Like so it's collectors can be very focused and you, you know, you think shoes are focused, but shoes have been worn around the world by everybody mm-hmm. since time immemorial. And, and she was up for it. Now, this is something that you have uh, talked a lot about, you know, in the museum context and the whole idea of one time in history, men wore high heels. Can you talk a bit about that? Because what, how, how did, it, nowadays, like, there's some great drag queens wearing men's you know, <laughs> uh, high heels um, and that's, uh, you know, v- celebrated and it looks very cool. But, you know, it, back in the day, it was just like these real straight guys would be wearing high heels. Why is that? So with that first question that I had at the, when I got to the museum was why the high heel? The first thing I had to do, because it just hadn't been done before, is figure out where did the high heel even come from? And so I've traced it as far back as 10th century Persia. I actually think it goes back further, where it's my thesis that the heel was invented um, to be worn in tandem with stirrup on horseback riding. And so the heel was used to basically help lock the foot in the stirrup and it helped warriors stand up in the stirrup and shoot bows and arrows um, with greater efficacy. And the Persians became famous for their um, military skills. And so for centuries, heels were worn for equestrian purpose. This is why cowboys wear high heels too. We just don't think about it in those terms. So it comes in through this sort of globalization connected to masculinity and equestrianism. And then over the course of the 17th century, men wore heels. Women then only began to wear heels because they wanted to borrow from their boyfriend's closets, basically. They, there was this fashion craze for women to add um, male items of dress to their, gar- to their looks. And so my, my work says that women wore heels in the effort to look more manly. And it's only over the course of the 17th century and into the 18th century that the heel, kinds of heels that men wore versus the kinds of heels that women wore change. Um, And the real reason why heels increase in height for women is because ideas about masculinity and femininity changed so that small became the defining feature of female beauty. Cinderella is written in 1697. And it's all about the teeny tiny little foot and the high heel helped women look like they had smaller feet because the heel lifts the foot up under their skirts, leaves just a teeny tiny little toe visible under the skirt. The whole history and reason why we wear high heels is much different than what we think looking at the heel from today. I mean, there's no question that high heels, as empowering as they are, maybe psychologically, physically, they make you much more vulnerable. I mean, you don't want to like, you know, someone running after you in a dark alley, if you're wearing a pair of high heels, it's like, ah. yet men were so willing to embrace that trend of wearing high heels. I mean, when you think men, didn't they always want to be in full control? You know, but if, if the heel enters into European fashion in connection to equestrianism, horses were like sports cars. 
Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's about it's about what culture values at any given moment and how how an object is read. Discomfort in fashion is almost always used to signify class. And so um, being in control is maybe less important than looking the part. And mm-hmm. so high heels have been an important um, item of dress to basically convey social information as opposed to be used for comfort and mobility. We have obviously been changing our uh, habits in terms of consuming fashion and consuming. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're obviously not buying as much as we were buying once upon a time, but there have been moments in the not too distant past when yeah. um, we really were celebrating this age of excess, especially yeah. when it came to shoes. Because when I was growing up in right. the, well, like the late 50s, 60s, 70s, it was, you know, you didn't need that many pairs of shoes. You needed a great pair of boots. You needed a great pair of, you know, black pumps. You needed maybe a, yeah. a, a pair of flats. A pair, you know, you could get by with uh, five or six good pairs of shoes. And that is so, and that has not been the case for quite a while now, obviously, Correct. the more the merrier it seemed. Our closets are bursting with all these shoes. I mean, how how do you view that kind of uh, wave that uh, we rode on for so long? I do think that democratization of fashion, you know, I've given this example before. We could all walk into a store like Gap, for example, and men, women, um, all genders, right, can walk into the Gap and buy the same T-shirt, and the same pair of jeans. And yet if you if one person walks out and then puts on a pair of Louboutins, they're making one statement. If another person walks out and puts on a pair of Air Jordans, they're making another statement. And if another person puts on a pair of even sneakers, but a different type, Converse, they're making yet another statement. And so we're putting more burden, I think, on our footwear to convey ideas about ourselves. So I also think that sneakers, more so than um, other forms of footwear at the moment, are also places where people are doing a lot of storytelling, like collaborations in sneakers are places where it can be retro, it can be a twist that relates to the biography of the collaborator. Um, And so all of these things are really being increasingly focused at the footwear level. And so I think they're doing more cultural work Mm -hmm. than we've ever had shoes do before. Mm. You know, the it bag has in some ways gone away. And so we, you know, if you look just across relatively recent history in the last, I don't know, six decades or so, you know, I also use this example. If you watched I Love Lucy ever. Ever, I grew up on it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it was all about the hat. Right. But she was she was constantly like unable to control herself around half purchases and she would have to hide them from her husband. And women don't wear hats anymore. And oh, so, don't tell that to Philip Tracy or Stephen Jones. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, to okay. the same extent. Right. Like yeah. you can actually go out without a hat on. Um, and so we don't have a lot of those other form, other aspects mm-hmm. of dress. And so we need our clothing to convey information and shoes do a really good job of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I often remember when I was a kid growing up, I I don't know who it was that said this, that it really stayed with me that the, almost the first impression that people could have of you, you know, what footwear are you wearing? Mm, They look at the shoes first. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely astounding. We're um, entering a, I personally hope this moment um, where truly less is more, because I think we've all had a chance to to sit back and say, wow, why do we need all this stuff? There's too much stuff in the world. Um, So when it comes to footwear, and if we are going to try and carry that less is more torch, Hmm. does that mean that you just have to save up for the best quality shoes that you can and uh, maybe do away with some of this cheap and cheerful stuff that's out there? Because, boy, there's a lot of junk out there in the shoe department. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, I think that increasingly we are concerned with sustainability. And so I think there are, there are different uh, approaches to that. I think that you could buy a pair of shoes that you know is going to basically self-destruct 
and degrade and not become a, a, par, a permanent part of mm-hmm. the waste cycle. You could also invest in beautifully made um, shoes that last for a really, really long period of time. Um, and so I think that there are different ways of approaching it, or you can buy a pair of Crocs and, and wear them probably until your dying day, and then they stay with you in the grave forever. Yeah, Crocs <laughs> kind of ha- had a moment, right? I, th- I, I remember reading yeah, something back, man. last back. year, you <laughs> talked about uh, Crocs in a big way in one of the uh, the major papers, just like Crocs. <gasps> yeah. They were verboten for so long, but you know, know. yeah. Oh, the way of Birkenstocks too, that you know, we're yes. never really about a great fashion statement, but hey, we've seen them on some actual high fashion runways now. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> What about the whole idea of designers, um, you know, kind of pushing their boundaries and getting into shoe biz? And most high-end designers now do have their own shoe lines. How do you feel about that? Is that maybe spreading themselves too thin or do you... Do you celebrate that? Is that a good thing? The more designer shoes, the better? You know, again, I, I do think that we could be at a crossroads moment. If we, you know, let's imagine that we do decide that we're going to go for greater sustainability and the way, and one of the ways we're going to do that is investing in well-made shoes, then we really don't want the shoe style to change rapidly. So exactly how we're going to move forward with high fashion footwear, I think is an interesting question to contemplate. But how do I feel about um, fashion designers getting into shoes? I think it's great. I mean, if you think about Prada, right? You know, she's done some amazing shoes uh, or has has offered amazing shoes. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And if you think going back to Christian Dior and his partnership with um, Roger Vivier, right? I mean, Amazing. And, yeah. uh, and, and so I do think that there is huge potential for, I mean, if you have a vision and you can tr- have that translated, I don't mm-hmm. know that all those fashion designers are shoe designers, but uh-huh. if they can work with talented uh, makers, then great yeah. design is great design. Yeah. And absolutely capitalizing on a brand is never necessarily a bad thing for a designer for sure. But it's funny how we haven't really seen, I'm trying to think of any examples of shoe designers getting into the, you know, clothing oh, yeah, arena. Other things. Yeah. yeah. Like why didn't Manolo or, you know, Christian Louboutin yeah. ever come out with a clothing collection? Um, Although Christian Louboutin has been doing makeup. Yes. And nail polish. And yeah, <laughs> that's true. And so, and, and so, you know, and, and they often, you do see um, purses or handbags. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So who knows, maybe, maybe this call, this is a call to shoe designers to try their hands with <laughs> some uh, fashion. <laughs> Just talking about a, a couple of the a Canadian, because we're based in Canada here, and so yes. is the Bata Shoe Museum, uh, yep. Canadian shoe designers who have uh, managed to make a mark yes. on the international arena. We're going to be featuring Patrick Cox uh, on the podcast as well. And Patrick, a dear old friend that I've known since, uh, well, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s, when he was yeah. a mere shop boy, you know, on Young <laughs> Street, you know, a kid yeah. dressing me for the new music. And now, you know, <laughs> wow, like he really went on to um, design shoes for John Galliano and, and, oh, and yeah. had his own brilliant shoe line. Um, yeah. what, what's your take on Patrick and what made his... Uh, perspective on footwear is so fabulous. Patrick's designs uh, are always have a kind of freshness to them. And it's something I actually, few shoe designers do it, but I actually admire quite a bit, which is having a sense of humor in, in the footwear that they design. And so being able to translate, bring it to the shoes and not only make a, a shoe that's sort of delightful, but also a fashion icon, I think is a rare talent. And I think that Patrick has that magic. Yeah, with his wannabe shoes, it's still... Yeah, like, exactly. I, I that's right. Rue the day that I uh, gave up mine. I had a pair of snakeskin wannabes that were oh. to die for. I What was I thinking that I got rid of those shoes. What's your favorite pair of shoes to wear? I mean, what you must have quite a little collection yourself, but what's your go-to shoe? I'm just curious to know what you're wearing on your feet, even right now. (laughs) Right now I'm barefoot. Um, (laughs) Increasingly I am wearing sneakers. But I do, I do like a pair of Vivier flats. Um, do have uh, some of those that I'd like. 
So I guess it's been flat a lot recently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, join the club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, such a joy to talk with you and uh, hear uh, your thoughts on shoes. And boy, you're just a walking encyclopedia. You, you're just a, <laughs> an absolute delight and continued success at the uh, Bata Shoe Museum. Really, I wish you continued success with that major cultural institution <laughs> that's such a gem in our midst. Really, I absolutely love the place. So thank well, you. Thank for, you for running it so well. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I feel very, very blessed to be able to work there. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Take good care. Thanks. Coming up next, we revisit the 90s with iconic shoe designer, Patrick Cox. But first, every great conversation needs a pause. And so this is the perfect time to talk to you about our sponsor, TSC, who without their help, this podcast wouldn't be possible. As you might know, I've covered the catwalks of Paris, Milan, New York, and London. And so you might ask, why have I partnered with a retailer like TSC, today's shopping choice? Well, I believe great fashion should be accessible to everyone. And TSC.ca is home to some amazing designers, wonderful Canadians like Brian Bailey, Kim Newport Mimran of Pink Tartan fame, and Hilary McMillan, as well as quality brands like Lamarck and Ron White Shoes. It's one-stop shopping for everything you need to make your own style statement. And of course, TSC offers so much more than mere fashion. Shop tsc.ca and discover some great brands at some great prices. Back in about 1981, when I was in the throes of hosting a rock music show called The New Music, I was dressed by a wonderfully hip Canadian designer named Leighton Barrett, who had a very funky boutique on Toronto's Young Street Strip. I delighted in regularly popping by Leighton's, not only for the fabulous clothes, but because there was this really cool club kid who worked there with a great eye for style, and he knew exactly what pieces to put me in. Patrick Cox had recently moved to Toronto from Edmonton, Alberta, and was about 18 at the time. And while he did a great job for Leighton, I knew he was destined for bigger things. Sure enough, a couple of years later, Patrick took off to study shoe design in London and soon was collaborating with the likes of Vivian Westwood and John Galliano. By the 90s, at the helm of his own company, Patrick came up with some iconic shoes, most famously the chunky wannabe loafer. Patrick's dynamic and whimsical designs won him legions of celebrity fans, from Madonna and Kylie Minogue to Michael Jackson and Elton John. And with besties like Elizabeth Hurley and David Furnish, he earned the reputation of being a real party boy. In 2003, Patrick took the creative reins at famed French shoe label Charles Jourdain for a couple of years before selling his own company in 2007. He's also designed shoes for Italy's Geox. But these days, Patrick's taking it easy in Ibiza, where he spends a lot of time chilling with his dog Titus and reminiscing about an electric fashion era that is no more. Patrick Cox, a pleasure to have you on this episode of Beyond Style Matters. Boy, do we go back. I look at you and I look at this shop boy. You were dressing me for the new music. You were dressing me. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember. I remember. And I thought you were the coolest guy. (laughs) And I was taking all my style advice from you. I mean, if you said it was cool. And I was about 18. I think an amazing time for all of us who, who loved fashion and who who really just wanted to be, you know, rebellious in a way by doing the unexpected. And, you know, there you were selling, 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 which was great. But you had such a unique style of your own. I mean, for such a young age, you knew who you were. Or was that just an illusion? Did you know who you were at that young an age? Oh, I, I don't think I knew anything. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd moved to Toronto in 81 from Edmonton. I moved when I was 17. And then I moved on to London when I was 20. So those were really developing years. I mean, 17 to 20, who knows who they are at 17 to 20. Um, you were talking about, you know, being rebellious in fashion. It was also such a key point, the intersection between music and fashion, wasn't it? Um, To me, 
I looked to London for inspiration. I didn't look so much to New York for a little bit new way, blondie, but it was definitely much more a culture club, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Eurythmics. They were, you know, my icons of style. And, you know, as soon as I could, I was two, two and a half years in Toronto. I got up and moved to shoe college in London, didn't I? Tell me about that, because it, the next time I saw you after those, you know, crazy days on Young Street, you were yeah. living London. We came to interview you with our crew, Fashion Television. You, you <laughs> yeah, were already yeah. established shoe designer. You were working with John Galliano, and here you were. You know this kid that I yeah. It was it was very how, fast. How did how first of all did you decide on shoes? Why did you decide to study footwear? Okay, so after working for Leighton, uh, I worked unofficial for Lucas Clanthos. Remember Lucas? Yes. Um, and uh, I had no fashion training, obviously. I was a kid. Uh, they just liked the way I looked. It was just, you know, my style sort of thing. So I used to hang out in the showroom uh, in the office. I remember Tim Blanks was Lucas's boyfriend for 12, yeah. 13 years, however long they were together. And Tim would be there. I couldn't draw. I couldn't cut patterns, but I just had ideas. That was basically what I did was just shout out an idea every now and then. Yeah, they put me in charge of styling the fashion show. And then at, uh, after the show, um, Lucas just said, said to me, he goes, you seem to really like shoes. I went, did I? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I remember, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever seen Linda Evangelista to cast her for the show. Um, I was in charge of the hair and the makeup and the accessories. And, you know, Toronto has no footwear industry per se, except for like, I don't know if it's even there anymore, Mr. John's or Lord John's, which used to be on King's Road, on um, Young Street, oh, made shoes John. for rock. Yeah, Master John, that was it. It made shoes for rockers. And then there's like, you know, snowmobile boots. I mean, there really is no footwear industry. So I went to Chinatown. I bought some like Kung Fu slippers for a dollar a pair. And then I was obsessed with Montana and Moogler at the time. So I got pieces of suede and made them into those slouchy crush fall down boots just by attaching suede to these $1 um, Kung Fu slippers. I painted them different colors by hand. I don't remember any flash from God, any message from beyond. But Lucas said, you seem to really enjoy doing that. I heard of this school in London. I went to London in May 81 to find the college. I spent the entire time in nightclubs. Uh, I met Steve Strange. I met Boy George. I met all my idols. I went to the Camden Palace. I made all these connections. I got back to Toronto and I went, oh my God, I never, I never found the college. And September 1st, 1981, I moved to London on my own. Um, I ended up living with Rusty Egan, who owned the Camden Palace and was part of the band Visage. And I went to college. You know, I hated it. I cried every day. I'd never done art school. I was much more physics, chemistry, biology, math, French, English at, at school. I didn't understand these people. And London was really bleak at the time. This is like the peak of Thatcherism. You know, it was, you remember it was called Hard Times in, in the Face magazine. You know, everybody was wearing DMs and um, ripped up jeans. And I was just, I don't understand this place. And then New Year's Eve, I was leaving Camden Palace and I went to an after hour speakeasy called the Pink Pussycat in Soho. And in the loo of the Pink Pussycat, I met all the Vivian Westwood team. And they came up to me in the loo <laughs> in this sleazy speakeasy and said, you're that American boy that shops in our store. And I said, Canadian. And they said, I mean, this sounds so pathetic now, but they're like, we like the way you look. You can hang out with us. And to me, that was the biggest, you know, acceptance <laughs> I'd ever, validation I'd ever had in my life to that point. So I ended up hanging out with them. Vivian's assistant at the time was a guy named David Staines, and he lost his flat. And so he moved in with me in February 84. And their fashion show was March 1984 in Paris. And six weeks before the show, they realized... They had no one doing the shoes because Vivian was bankrupt at this point. She owed everybody money. Nobody would work with her. And David said, oh, my flatmate's a shoe designer. <laughs> I mean, I was in my first year of college. I knew nothing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm ha having a meeting with Vivian Westwood. And Vivian Westwood was probably 50% of the reason I moved to London was because of my obsession with her. So I sat there in this meeting with her, just sort of winging it. You know, she said, I'm thinking of this. And I said, well, what about we do it in patent? And then she goes, I'm thinking of this soul. I was like, well, what about if we round the edges? And she said, go on, do it. Not realizing that she owed everybody money and nobody wanted to work with her. <laughs> so I had to go out and find cobblers, literally shoe repair bars that would make these shoes for her because there was no fact 
factory that would work with her. I remember I had to pay for my own hovercraft because Vivian had no money. And I delivered the shoes the night before the show. You know, that was the beginning of it all. Um, I ended up modeling the show because there weren't enough male models. And Vivian said, oh, I like the way you look, Patrick. Boom, go out on the runway. And in the audience was all the future English designers, John Galliano, John Flett, they were all in the audience. And so word got out that I was this hot young new cobbler on the scene, even though I didn't know anything. <laughs> and it just sort of snowballed from there. In my second year of college, I did the shoes for Body Map. Remember Body Map? Uh, they had a Japanese... They had a Japanese shoe license, but the Japanese didn't want to make these handmade moccasins, strangely moccasins, which become sort of prophetic later in my life. And so I made these shoes by hand during college. The college threatened to fail me because I kept missing class. And I said, I don't care. I said, I've done the shoes for a one-way show in Paris and I'm working for Body Map. Go ahead, fail me. No one's ever going to ask to see my CV or my my diploma. And then I um, launched myself. You know, how unbelievable. Not only the... uh success that you would uh, end up achieving. But when you still say that shoes remained your passion throughout all this, I mean, you didn't veer off and become influenced to start, you know, cutting dresses or, you know, doing coats or I mean, it was still the shoes that held your focus and that you started to, you know, just get better and better and better and better at and such, such a variety of shoes. I mean, when I look at your career and the, the breadth of your footwear business, and the artistry of, of, of shoe making, wow. Like, it's incredible. What what held your focus on the feet? Twofold, really. I lacked their artistic background. I felt rather insecure in that world. So to me, I approached footwear like architecture. Um, I've approached it. So, you know, a building like a shoe has an inside and an outside and a hidden supporting structure. And the seam allowances and the, the allowances in footwear are millimeters as opposed to half an inch in fashion or something like that. So I approached it much more precisely and it, it worked with my my SWAT, my mathematical mind, let's say. The first day of college, uh, you know, and I did not know what I was doing. The college was in Hackney. And I would say 90% of the class drew a pink stiletto the first day of college. And I was sitting there with my, you know, square and my compass drawing a square-toed shoe. And the teacher ridiculed me, held up my drawing and said, we're drawing shoes, not cars. I mean, it since came back to haunt him, obviously, because I made a lot of money off some square-toed loafers. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was, I was just coming at it from a different point of view. Also, I'm extremely stubborn. So <laughs> I'm, my idea of, I'm going to go back to Toronto and, you know, work in a clothing store or whatever and admit that I was a failure. I just, that was just, that was just not going to happen. So I was going to make it happen, not never knowing it was going to be to the degree it did, but I was going to make it happen no matter what. To me, footwear designers, accessory designers propose. To me, clothing designers are much more egotistical. They impose, they demand, they do the total look head to toe. Where a footwear designer or a bag designer, a hat designer, you offer your client a shoe and what they do with the rest of the body is up to them. And I have no control over that. And once I've given up the shoe to the someone, it's up to them to do whatever. You know, sometimes you'll see someone wearing your shoes and, you know, they look pretty horrible. And someone goes, oh my God, look at that outfit. And I was like, they're happy. <laughs> they bought my <laughs> shoe. So I'm happy about that part. So from the ankle down, I'm yeah. happy. And what they did with the rest of it, that that's up to them. That's their creativity. Where a fashion designer would be like, you know, come over and fix the dress and fix the, you know, really demand and pose on the woman or the man. Yeah. I've never felt that way. I've always been a little bit more democratic democratic, which led to my huge success of doing something that was a bit more mass. You know, my success didn't come from couture and runways. You know, my success, as you know, came from the wannabe loafer. And that was something that dressed literally everybody. <laughs> and that was, um, that was the biggest compliment to me. It wasn't just one chic woman standing on a street corner on Boulevard Saint-Germain in Paris. It was being on the, uh, you know, on Portobello Road and seeing 300 pairs in one hour. You know, yeah. that to me was like, yes, this is, this is this is where I've broken through. When I think of back to the most amazing shoes in my wardrobe, and God knows I've had many pairs of amazing shoes in my wardrobe from all, you know, the world's greatest shoe designers. Two pair really are at the top of the list, both designed by you, both incredibly oh, wow. just the snakeskin one. I had a snakeskin wannabe. Yes. I don't know that python wannabe. Yes. I never yeah, 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 yeah. Snakeskin over, yeah. Unbelievable that I bought at Henry Bendel's. I remember on one uh, one fashion week in New York, and the wannabe was like 
the biggest shoe, like back in the nineties, that was like the, yeah. the must have shoe. And I went in and not only, you know, got my first pair of wannabes, but a snakeskin Python, whatever it was just to die for the most fabulous pair of shoes that I wore. And I wish I not right now I can't locate them. Although I can't believe I ever gave them away because I'd start wearing <laughs> them very in vogue again, but also a beautiful pair of stilettos made of iridescent feathers. Like, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the fine. Oh, fine you got them? Front. Yes. And it almost looks like they're wings. And I have those, you know, on a shelf, almost like objet d'art, you know, because they're yeah. just phenomenal. And, one that you would walk so precariously in. I mean, you could barely even walk. <laughs> and then the other ones, yeah. the one really zoom through your life in quite easily. How does one creative mind like yours really come to terms with two such disparate concepts in footwear? I love shoes. I don't know why. I just love shoes. And I'm not a shoe snob. You know, you talk to some people and it's only about the stiletto. It's only about this. I mean, I did plastic shoes in Brazil, the jellies, which we sold millions of pairs of back in the 90s. Remember the one with the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty and Big Ben and the heel and the shaking snowflake souvenir sort of thing. I did sneakers way before anybody in the, you know, the fashion shoe world was doing sneakers. Um, I just like shoes. I did moon boots, you know, because I thought, oh, I'm Canadian. You know, what can I bring to a moon boot? So to me, you put something in front of me. Already, shoes are already a very limited sphere you know there's the toe at that end the heel at that end you know boom where are you gonna go and people are always like what can you do with a shoe and i was like a million things if someone says to me design anything i get lost if someone gives me a parameter design anything between a and b i'm off for days i you know i just love it i can just go and go and go so to me um it was all about imagining moments um the men's shoes are always tried on my foot i am size eight UK, size nine, uh, North American. And that is the sample size. So it's that personal. Every single shoe in my entire career for men was tried on my foot. If I liked it, it was in. If I didn't like it, it was out. It was that basic. For women, it was always about imagining a moment. Normally a pop star, you know, we had last called the Chaka, the last called the Khan. We had, you know, we had Chaka Khan. We had, you know, we had, you know, Donna Summer. We had Madonna. We had everything. There was always music playing. And it was always imagining what would that person wear in this situation? What would that person wear and be on stage? What would that person be walking, getting out of a limousine? It was that. To me, when I go to a girlfriend's closet and I open her closet and there's all these shoes and I was like, oh, I never wore them. They killed me. To me, that's, I mean, I get it. It's a fetish, you know, it's a fetishistic, uh, you know, approach to footwear. But I love that people wore my shoes. And it's funny you chose those two shoes because those two are probably, to me, the pinnacle of my career. Oh. <laughs> it's really bizarre that you chose those two shoes because the, the snakeskin loafer, you know, it changed my life, bought my house in Ibiza, <laughs> it did everything. But it also kind of changed footwear, changed the history of the footwear industry. You know, we had lineups in front of the stores. You know, it was it was just a whole other thing. No one had seen a phenomenon like that in a long time for something that wasn't cheap but wasn't expensive. And then the, the feather shoes, I mean, those were my kind of almost anger at the fashion world because I'd been pigeonholed into the loafer guy. And before I did the loafers, and I didn't do the loafers till 92 and I started my career really in 85. So there were seven years of beautiful, you know, crafted stilettos, whatever. Everything after the loafer got lost in the mix. Everything became about the loafers. And that shoe I did after the success, during the success of Wannabe to just go, hey, I can do a couture moment too. You know, it's like, you know, stop going on about loafers all day long. You know, stop going on about clunky little heels. I can do that too. You have always been a reputation in, in the most delightful way. You know, you, you love the whole uh, business of uh, dressing up. So much of my career goes back to nightclubs and just a joie de vivre. I mean, my favorite reaction when someone comes into my showroom is not to say, oh my God, you're a genius, you changed the course of fashion or any ridiculous thing like that, is just to smile. And that's what I think my shoes bring, a lightness, a joy. I'm not a come de garçon, I'm not a fashion intellectual. I'm not on the artistic scale of a John Galliano, but I'll show you a real good time. <laughs> <laughs> and you can dance in my shoes you obviously have uh, you know inspired so many people in terms of style taught them so much you have somehow despite this incredible life that you've led and, and continue to lead you seem to remain quite grounded yourself and i don't know if that has to do with the dogs in your life that have, have been so important to you uh i don't know if it's because you're canadian at the end of the day perhaps that grounds you but what's your theory on that how have you managed not to lose your head in this business i'm very conscious of how other people feel and the fashion industry 
can be, as you know from the Me Too and the all this talk about bullying, can be intrinsically evil <laughs> without putting it, you know, too stressing it too much. And I, I'm just not that guy. I'm not a bully. I'm, I'm a defender of the underdog. I've always been a defender of the underdog. And I just didn't really understand why all that drama was necessary. You know, I actually got told off when I was creative director of Charles Jordan. I went to Japan. And I did 12 interviews back to back. And the French PR said, have a fit. And I said, what? He goes, you need to be more of a diva. It's expected of designers. And I went, what? I said, this is my job. He goes, yes, but have a fit. Like throw something around. I went, why? We flew here. We're in Tokyo. We're here for 48 hours. I've got 14 interviews to do. Why would I have a fit? Demand, demand something ridiculous. Demand champagne. I, mean, I don't drink champagne. I mean, like it was, it was, you know, they said that's what's expected of designers. And I just thought that was such a cliche yeah. point of view. Interesting. This time uh, that we've been living through, the, these COVID times have really done a lot to um, our attitudes towards fashion, I think. It's really changed. Yep you know, our approach and, and how we will approach and consume it in the future. What's your take on that, Patrick? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how are we going to want to, you know, wear footwear uh, in the in the months and years to come? You know, this this is a tough one for me because as, as far as I'm concerned, I've retired. I mean, that was my big decision moving to Ibiza three years ago. Um, I obviously left the Patrick Cox company in 2007. I did a, I worked for this big company, Geox. I launched my crazy bakery, Cox Cookies and Cake. I did a couple other things. And I decided I wanted to come back about 2013 or 14. And my middle name is Lastbridge. So I launched this thing called Lastbridge. And I just went, uh-uh, nope. This, this this isn't what I want to do. I mean, it was hard enough getting my things done when I was rocking and, you know, say, one of the biggest brands in the world, sort of footwear brands in the world. But starting from zero again and not being able to use my name, you know, Patrick Cox, and just looking around the landscape, the slavish devotion to celebrities, you know, the addiction to Instagram over everything, just the way the retailers work. I just thought, I, don't, I really don't want to be part of this industry anymore. So 2017, in the middle of um, Last Bridge, we just done Paris Fashion Week. I went back to London. I sent an email to all the factories, canceled the collection. I went to all the retailers, canceled all the deliveries. And I came here to Ibiza. I saw 22 properties in three days. And on my birthday, March 19th, I announced to all my friends I bought a house to Ibiza and Ibiza and I was moving. And they all went, what are you on? <laughs> and I went, no, I have. And they're like, well, when? I've not really looked back. I can honestly say I have not looked at a fashion magazine in three years. Of course, I get my online content, but I just keep deleting, 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 deleting more and more things to do with fashion. Now, of course, with what's going on, you know, I would say probably 50% of the world's designers are bankrupt, whether they're admitting it or not yet. You know, they, if they delivered spring, they didn't get paid for it. If they didn't deliver it, they've got stuck with it. If they have their own stores, they've got a mountain of it. What's happening to all that stuff? Where's where's it gone? You know, where is it gone? And now we're supposed to be buying winter and nobody's in the stores again. I've got all these people going, oh my God, you were so smart. You were so prophetic. And I went, I didn't know the world was coming to an end, kids. I just was going through my personal trip. But to me, the thought, of having a fashion brand right now, I, I, I can't even imagine how stressed I'd be. I, I, I literally don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I really don't know what they're going to do. I imagine the super brands will exist because of the endless resources they have behind them. You know, you know, Louis Vuitton, name anyone. They've got 500 stores. Where's all that merchandise gone <laughs> from summer? Because it didn't sell. You know, where does it go? You know, and what's going to happen with winter? And how are they going to show it? And I don't have any answers. I really, and you know what? I don't have to stay awake killing myself wondering what the answers are. I can just go out and grow some vegetables and go for a walk on the beach with my dogs and go, thank God I got out when I got out. Is that weird? Is that the answer you want? Probably not. <laughs> 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 Darling, thanks so much for being on this edition of Beyond Style Matters and uh, continued happiness in Ibiza. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening. To see video versions of the podcasts, check out tsc.ca slash stylematters. You can watch Style Matters Thursday on TSC or on the tsc.ca website. New episodes of Beyond Style Matters will be coming at you every Monday. Till next time, I'm Jeannie Becker.